What's up, everybody? It's your boy, Fatal. This episode was actually recorded two weeks earlier, the week of September 22nd, due to some scheduling errors and some hard drive issues that we have now fixed. Thank you for your understanding, and thank you for your continued support. I hope you enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Raid Shadow Legends. Join over 150 million players in a fantasy RPG that's crazy fun. Whether you play it hardcore to get every character in every level, or you're passing time at the DMV. Raid Shadow Legends is available on PC or mobile. I streamed Raid, and it's awesome. Visually stunning. It's top 3 in the App Store and Google Play Store, and has over 500 characters to collect and battle. Sounds too good to be true, but wait, let me blow your mind. It's free. What are you waiting for? The Realm needs your help in Raid Shadow Legends. Sign up for free. That's RaidShadowLegends.com. What's up, y'all? It's your boy, Fatal, and we're back to talk about everything under the sun and the moon that catches the attention of fandoms, viewing audiences everywhere. And the internet has been on fire lately, of course with the release of the Spider-Man trailer and now the Hawkeye trailer, but it's not all about the television and movies. Marvel has been trying to run instead of crawl to get back to where they were before the pandemic. Sony had their press conference and revealed god of war ragnarok and i'm absolutely excited not just because he's training loki spoiler alert if you didn't play god of war 4 speaking of loki though sony had a couple marvel game reveals a sequel to the story they started in new york amidst the career of peter parker's spider-man but also a sequel to the off-season spin-off and full release title in its own right, with a self-contained story that focused on a different Spider-Man, Miles Morales. The fan-favorite superhero got his own full-fledged game adaptation using assets from the game mentioned prior. Now, both Spider-Man being fleshed out in their story, their Sony game universe, they'll have to team up and fight Venom, Harry Osborn, who seems to be taking orders from someone in the trailer voiceover. I can't wait to play this game. I 100%ed both of the Spider-Man games, uh, got my Platinums, and I'm gonna do it again. Out of left field, though, a reveal for the Berserker himself, Wolverine, is getting an Insomniac game adaptation, hopefully using what the studio learned from Spider-Man, but slapping a rated M for Mature label on it. I want it to be double capital M for Mature. I want to see the repercussions of fighting Wolverine, from his point of view. It's got to be a terrifying existence, slicing off body parts every time you ever touch somebody or anybody ever makes you angry. You're just the guy who cuts him in half. I can't wait. The Marvel Midnight Suns game got revealed a couple weeks ago, and that looks absolutely insane. Everyone's costumes cladded in runes, but I'm not a fan of the trailer song. Wasn't my kind of cover. The game looks absolutely full of heart, though, going by the same name of a group in the comics who dedicated themselves to fighting the paranormal. And with the squad we see revealed, I'm gonna play this game. Possibly with even more excitement than I had going into Marvel's Avengers. They had Wolverine, Ghost Rider, Doctor Strange, Magic. This team looks nuts. Blade, sign me up. There's only one other trailer we're gonna talk about during this foils, and it's the Hawkeye trailer. And we'll get to that after 
an episode of What If. So without further ado, let's do this. Marvel Zombies. I still cannot believe they chose to do this comic arc. Marvel tended to be a little bit of all ages, throwing a shit here and there in some of their PG-13 properties, because as you know, in a PG-13 movie, you're allowed, like, one cuss word. You're allowed to say shit. I can't remember how the rules go on saying fuck and everything else. I'm pretty sure you get one fuck, but you gotta make it good. It's gotta stand out. Let's ponder the question that's on everyone's mind. With this new episode of the Marvel series titled, What If Zombies? A self-explanatory explanation and fully referential to the only Marvel Zombies series fans are familiar with in canon. Bruce Banner falls from the stars to warn humanity, a scene we see in the opening following the fight Hulk has with Thanos. Where Hulk would proceed to recoil until the off time between Infinity War and Endgame where they fuse into Professor Hulk. But the world he found was not the one he recognized. Bruce falls through the roof of the Sanctum Sanctorum. Thanos is coming. Thanos is coming. Doctor Strange's cloak of levitation monitors the Hulk from atop the Sanctum Sanctorum. Bruce Banner gives us an ah jeez. He went from Rick to Morty, unable to turn into the Hulk. Thanos is coming. But you know what else is coming? The inevitable wall of slow-moving death approaching ever so near. But right now, to an unsuspecting Bruce Banner at the beginning of Infinity War, the only thing on its way is Thanos in the Black Order, Obsidian Call and Ebony Maw. So when our heroes arrive endgame style five years too early, we find a tad bit of bloody overkill. Iron Man, Captain Rogers, the sorcerers arrive via sling ring to devour the corpses of the newly arrived villains. With the main Avengers presented to us in the beginning perished, it begs the question of who will be the heroes of our apocalyptic journey? The Cloak of Levitation arrives to aid Bruce Banner in his survival from the deceased Avengers. Wong creating a sling ring, as we saw his reflex to make one in order to save, uh, Iron Man from Obsidian Call, where he severs Obsidian Call's hand. Oddly enough, the Obsidian Call was what all of them were called in the comics, not the Black Order. As the name could be hard to remember, they changed it to the focus of a single character, who seems to be there just to act as a big guy for our heroes to beat down, to demoralize a lot, to test powers. Wong jumps through his newly formed portal and finds himself entrapped by the cloak. The cloak slings him back through the portal and utterly decapitated Wong. Severing the brain function is how these things actually have to die. That's why I question Captain's zombie death later, because he doesn't get his head severed off. Summoning a horde of flying ants, the insects proceed to devour Iron Man and the sorcerers. This was the difference, I think, in them using their powers as second nature, and having the evolving intellect to prevent a death such as this. Tony wouldn't be helmetless if he could help it at all, and because it doesn't cross a zombie's undead mind to shield their mouth so they can eat. This Tony was left vulnerable. As it seems to be a trend in these Disney Plus Marvel series, Tony's kind of left dying, or in a dying state. That's not what killed Tony, though. It's actually a decapitation from Hope Van Dyne, which by this time, she might have wanted to do it personally considering her father's ties with Howard Stark. They aren't fond of the Starks. An ant 
a giant ant, of course, eats the head of Tony because why not? We're going dark this episode. Banner gets saved by Spider-Man, and this would be their first formal greeting because Hulk was in space during Civil War, where we got the introduction of Spider-Man for the MCU. Uatu shares the story about Hank Pym diving into the quantum realm from Ant-Man and the Wasp, which is yet another what-if story centering around Hank and Hope, or amongst the center. Uatu fucking goes oof. He oofed Hank Pym's death. Classic. This story taking place during Infinity War and just two weeks after Ant-Man and the Wasp, which obviously means Hope has become the Wasp by now. And with loss. She's become an Avenger. And personally, I love getting to spend with a Wasp a little bit of time. In this case, Hope, because Wasp is such a cool level up of an already existing classic. I'm talking about Ant-Man. And she has an incredible character design. The Avengers arrive in the West Coast and Captain gets bit by a mosquito. Nope, it's actually a small Hank Pym, shrunk to an advantageous zombie size. This shows it's about spreading, and not about being full, it's not about hunger, but Hank shrinking down, he could fill up his belly, or enlarge some flesh, and then just feed on that for the rest of his zombie life. The Avengers succumb to the zombie horde and join the infected, which wouldn't have happened if you knew the rules. Introduced to the zombie survival squad like the intro to a show or like Zombieland with Woody Harrelson, the survivors consisting of Sharon Carter, Happy Hogan, Bucky Barnes, Kurt, Peter Parker, Hope Van Dyne, General Okoye, and now Bruce Banner. An impromptu video on how to possibly survive this apocalypse guided by Spider-Man teaching us ways the zombies actually perform and behave with their virus. Later, this infection gets mentioned by Vision, him saying it attacks the limbic system. Why wouldn't Kurt think Bucky's arm isn't waterproof? It's absolutely crazy. A montage of introductions and do's and do nots, like Ned's Declassified School Survival Guide for Zombies. The train's hideout is brilliant. Their fort is suspended above New York by Spider-Man's webbing. The zombies would have to think to jump from an aerial advantage, which is impressive enough they can use their powers to full efficiency, but I don't think they're gonna think to get on top of a New York rooftop and then clear a jump, if they're really hungry. Spider-Man's watching of movies comes in handy with tactical ideas such as this, brilliant. The higher the hideout, the harder it is. The group gets a hexacode signal, which could reference Wanda's abilities, officially titled Hex, or Hexes, or Hexing. And the signal is coming from New Jersey, appropriate for the reveal of our Wanda and Vision later, but as if Camp Lehigh is the safest place in New Jersey. With what we see in Endgame, it just may be. But how would Vision know that? I thought you were an Uber driver. Personally, I don't care for Happy's involvement in a lot of these properties, but because I primarily think of the big superhero names, I have to be able to give credit to side characters or supporting characters so that these stories feel more grounded and more human. Happy does step up a bit coming up, and his sense of humor keeps us going in the more boring or lulled out parts. Okoye stays on top of her roast game, with the line following, Doesn't Wakanda have horror movies? Okoye replies, We don't need them. We have American reality shows. Okoye on fire! The team splits up to attempt to hotwire a train. Falcon prowls on Okoye and Bucky from a distance, a sinister scene classic to movies with Falcon's silhouette haunting the two. And now classic Spider-Man, with slingshotting a fucking train, this man is always forcing trains around, 
At least he's not having to stop one again. Happy says blam when he fires. I hope he does that with his normal security firearm. He then gets stabbed by a grappling arrow and forced into the shadows where a zombie hawk Hawkeye resides. Firing an arrow and pinning Sharon to the wall, Hawkeye and Falcon make their simultaneous episodic debut. Zombie Happy goes blam! Could this show the reason the zombies can use their tools is it's the last thing they have when they are dying because Happy's no expert with the Iron Man suit. He'd sooner still let Pepper suit up. He is able to use the Iron Man gauntlet and remembers Blam. Maybe it's not as instinctual as I thought in cases of Wanda. Uh, we know the Scarlet Witch has no use for spells. So she, wouldn't, so she wouldn't need to access them. She wouldn't need to say the spell. She just does them. And she's not doing anything that's necessarily insane. She's just telekinetically throwing some of the group members around. Okoye severs Falcon in half, top to bottom, to save Bucky Barnes. And when told she's sorry, Bucky replies, he's not that sad. I had to think about this a million different ways. Is he not sad because in Civil War, their last memory meeting up wasn't that good? They were getting their asses handed to them by Spider-Man and, and Falcon literally says, I hate you. Because they haven't been able to bond in Falcon and the Winter Soldier, that's what I have to take this as. Because Bucky's kind of cold in this episode, even when he fights Steve. I kind of miss m my Bucky. I kind of miss our new Bucky. Heck yeah, cape! Doctor Strange's cape comes in, just in time to save Peter holding about 4,000 pounds of tension. This speaks to Spider-Man's super strength, though. But, looking back on the footage from Civil War, he catches a car, mid-crash, between a bus. In Homecoming, he prevents a ship from splitting in half. Spider-Man is super fucking strong. Like Thor, like Hulk. He's a terrifying enemy to have, but thankfully he's not really the enemy. That's why in the recent Daredevil run of comics, they start the series by having Spider-Man take the Daredevil mantle away from Matt for his own good. He's still acting like a superhero, but obviously to Daredevil, he's his opposition. He's a villain. For a little bit. I won't spoil too much of that one, it's incredible, go check it out, comicshoplocator.com, go grab it. Wasp takes action to protect the cape and Parker, hoping Peter have an instinct for not wanting to lose people. Everyone else in the group has had their moral lines drawn at some point, Kurt being a criminal, Okoye being a military general, she's seen war. And Sharon Carter, well, we know what Sharon Carter would do. Happy was a good man and that's why Peter comments on that one, almost singularly versus everybody else in the group. The cape brings Spider-Man aboard the train after releasing the tension, slingshotting the group toward New Jersey. Maybe you'll grow into it. Sharon walking alone finds a disturbance on the roof of the train, a dramatic and prolonged reveal so that we get a pretty badass line, I thought. I think you've had enough, Cap. I don't know, Bucky. He could do this all day. Eating, eating people, that is. Bucky confronts a zombie Steve Rogers to the loss of Sharon Carter to the infection. But as zombie Sharon reanimates, she gets pushed aside by Bucky so he may confront his undead best friend. Showing his ability to counter Steve's shield similar to how he's done in the past, most notably the Winter Soldier, Bucky catches and returns the shield, severing Steve in half by the hip. I guess this is the end of the line. Bucky is emotionless because he hasn't had to chase away his demons yet. He hasn't been to Wakanda long enough by this time. We know that Bucky was in the care of the Wakandans, but as we find out later in the episode, T'Challa would be absent to tend to recovering Bucky because he went to San Francisco during the zombie outbreak. 
The Dora Milaje wouldn't know to recover Bucky without the order. As far as anyone is concerned at this point, Bucky is a murderer and a fugitive. He's a criminal to Wakanda. Besides T'Challa and Steve, and everyone on Captain America's team in Civil War, they're not that impartial to Bucky. The timeline does kind of get difficult to line up to certain movies at times, but this series is all about suspending disbelief for the sake of animation. So I digress. Hope Van Dyne arrives to help Bucky and flies into the freshly decaying mouth of Sharon Carter, demonstrating that Ant-Man could have flown up Thanos' anus, or the Thanos, I should say, and expanded himself defeating and imploding Thanos into a million pieces. Hope expands and decimates Sharon Carter into a bloody mess. Disney censors this blood by changing its color, allowing for a disassociation with human mortality. Although it's pretty hard to hide what's happening here, the Watcher looms ever closer in the background. Hope comments on how she admires Spider-Man's ability to always smile and see the positivity in the darkest and bleakest of scenarios, and this was a very dark episode. Spider-Man holds out hope that they will save Hope, because that's her name, right? It's a pretty strong concept, though, giving hope to an inevitable death. Not wanting to face the reality this death could bring. A sadness. When asked how he stays upbeat, Spider-Man presents a list of people. I was like, okay, he's gonna say Uncle Ben. Spider-Man has a list of people. One of them doesn't even make the first listing, that's how long it is. Mom. Dad. Uncle Ben. Mr. Stark. Happy. And then he goes, Aunt May used to say. Meaning, of course, she's dead too, right? Poor Spider-Man. If Doctor Strange is worried about hanging out with Wanda, because it might get him killed considering her track record, let's look at Peter. Don't even get me started on Gwen Stacy. Doctor Strange, run away, man. The train stops, and the zombie horde is ever-present outside the train in a large gathering. Hope grows very large in order to walk the Avengers to safety over the gate of the facility they were heading toward, Camp Lehigh. And Hope falls just after setting our heroes down safely. The horde of zombies starts to engulf Hope, breaking her visor, getting to her flesh. Letting Zero Hope sink in for Miss Hope Fandyne, we say goodbye to another hero in this episode. And it's not over yet. Our zombie survivors find Vision, because as Vision states, he wasn't on the menu. Paul Bettany's return kind of put icing on the cake in this episode for me. It added that sense of genuine MCU, hearing his posh, calculated tone. Bringing them into the facility, we also find a Futurama-style head in a jar. And who else could it be but Scott Lang? A silly enough character to where we can dance around the gruesome fate presented for Scott. This was written brilliantly. An episode for a general enough age range, and I'm sure this will be a gem to play around Halloween. For some of us, Halloween is year-round. I'm looking at you, Wanda. Who we find haunting the facility with her zombie presence. Vision was able to reverse the zombification process in the limbic system with the Mind Stone present in his forehead, allowing Scott to live as a head. But Wanda is too strong. As we know, her powers come from the Mind Stone, which means Vision would have limitations to it. In this same idea, this is what makes Vision originally magnetized to Wanda, her latent potential yet to be unlocked. He had a piece of him inside of her. The love that blossoms from these two becomes eternal and codependent, which presents, in different lights and angles, a mighty unhealthy relationship. So unhealthy, in fact, 
Vision keeps his zombie girlfriend sustained by reversing the zombie process on infected humans, curing them, then severing their body parts for slow feeding. A victim of this, which seems unclear if he was infected before this, but T'Challa in the basement says Vision scooped him up, and he thought he was saving him. This thought could have been a cry inside his already zombified mind, or it could just be that he never turned, but we saw the Avengers get jumped in the beginning of the episode. So it's presumed that because Black Panther's standing amongst all of them that I would think he became a zombie first. In Vision's defense, I've got nothing. That's part of the fun of these stories, giving us enough and grand enough of an idea that we can fill in our own stories, parts, and headcanon. I'm fully down for Bucky wielding the shield also, in Falcon's absence, both of them having been captain. These little moments where Bucky looks the part definitely hits. T'Challa comes out to reveal Vision's evil actions and intent, and Vision comes to the clarity that it is immorally wrong, and decides to help the group. Okoye gets chumped by Wanda. I didn't like this death. I thought Okoye could have done something cool, even against Wanda, maybe. Vision proceeds to rip the Mind Stone out of his own head, like how Thanos did in, en in Infinity War, to give the heroes a chance for the cure, to use the Mind Stone in Wakanda to broadcast a signal worldwide, which could recalibrate the zombies' brainwaves. This, however, does raise a question as to why Vision made Wanda do this in Infinity War, instead of ripping it out of himself. I'm sure he was very conflicted, but if Wanda could have kept both hands on Thanos, she could have held him back, or damn near defeated him, like we saw in Endgame, while Vision ripped out the stone for her. It seems weird, but there's a reason they showed us that. Us as viewers should ask, then how are you going to get the stone if Wanda doesn't rip it out? If Wanda was never a player in this and we still needed the stone out of Vision, how would we have gotten it? He could have done it himself. Wanda chases after the escaping survivors after trying to feel for Vision inside of his corpse like how she did in WandaVision when they let her feel around for his soul. She couldn't feel anything, which is when Wanda changed focus away from the corpse in WandaVision and went and enslaved all of New Jersey. And what if Wanda mobilizes to straight up murder the others for this? She felt that grief. She felt that anger, which is something we didn't see her do toward S.H.I.E.L.D. when she found the Corpse of Vision. At least not yet. Bruce Banner runs headfirst into a horde of zombies, hoping to change, and he does, not without the suspense that he might fail. A zombie once attempting to bite Bruce Banner, the Incredible Hulk comes out unlike how he did during Infinity War, because their teeth can't break the Hulk's bullet-resistant skin. Banner does fully transform, though, and we get an intense battle between the Hulk and the Scarlet Witch, surrounded by a crowd of zombies, and in the distance, including Hope Van Dyne as a towering zombie. Something we see as Spider-Man, T'Challa, and Scott Lang's head escape for Wakanda in the Quinjet to reverse this zombie apocalypse, and then Hope grabbing them out of the sky. Thanks to the thrusters in Hope's zombie face, they were released and on their way. The clip just before this episode ends shows a zombie Thanos in Wakanda missing but one stone in his Infinity Gauntlet. He's after our last survivors for this stone to change the universe and whatever hellish vision zombie Thanos could have for existence. The Watcher stating, humans would do anything to save their planet, even if it meant bringing about the end of the universe. These episodes all seem to have a universe that ends up perishing, possibly. Dr. Strange's... Star-Lord, uh, an Ego meeting up in the Dairy Queen, and now Marvel Zombies. 
There's going to be a reckoning by the end of this, I can tell. That's a wrap on episode 5 of Marvel's What If. A little late on the podcast, but because we got a couple new sponsors and there's been a lot going on, it's difficult being bombarded with all of these fandoms, but I wouldn't have it any other way. We have a lot of content and a lot of time to make up for because of the pandemic, but with the movie industry coming back in full swing, there's new ideas and concepts to actualize. And we'll be here to cover it, cover a lot of it, if not all of it, most of it. But right now, we're going to go to a commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to talk Hawkeye and Episode 6 of What If. Stay tuned. Hey, you, listener, where else do you find all your needs in smoke culture? Your 420 lifestyle? Indulging in a fandom like Rick and Morty, Dragon Ball Z, and Marvel? Back pain and in need of CBD? 535 Smoke Shop has you covered. In the greater province of Orlando from Kissimmee to 417. 535 Smoke Shop has four locations and more opening soon. And they are open late every single night. That's 535 Smoke Shop of Vineland and elsewhere. Open late. And welcome back. I'm surprised during that commercial break they didn't release something else for us to try and cover. But right now we're going to try and cover the Hawkeye trailer. During the making of this podcast episode, something incredible was realized. And because I was still exhaling from Spider-Man No Way Home's trailer release, I didn't even consider what the Hawkeye series could be. Or when it was coming out exactly. This trailer had everything I wanted out of a Disney Plus Marvel TV series. A cast of characters that require more time to fall in love with because they don't have the A-lister confidence or the name on the movie. So the Hawkeye show could be more in tune with the comics. It gives them more freedom to play with things. And it certainly felt that way. I couldn't unsee the My Life as a Weapon story arc. Where Kate Bishop and Clint have wild explosive energies with some lesser heard of names. It feels contained. And for some reason the dialogue also feels like it matters more. So when Hawkeye says something, it's not like, yeah, whatever, man, that's just Hawkeye. When's She-Hulk coming out? <laughs> I'm actually going to want to care what canon Clint brings to this, this show. Kate Bishop is getting introduced and her reveal in the trailer didn't dilute the show's potential by possibly showing its key center point. Because the title Hawkeye doesn't just pertain to Clint Barton, Kate Bishop also becomes Hawkeye. And with these TV shows forming the Young Avengers, it's more than likely Yelena and Kate will come to blows and both probably join the Young Avengers. But we don't see Yelena in the trailer, which has me more curious. Vincent D'Onofrio is tweeting about how he was in the show. Remember him from the Netflix Daredevil series? This would potentially canonize Matt Murdock in the MCU if it's true. I think not showing the villain in the trailer makes it a more character-centric showing, a more character-centric tease, an introduction for a character. It was beautifully done and hit on all the right notes and tensions in the trailer. I'm here for the Rogers musical. The internet is also blowing up with Kate Bishop missing her shot memes. I have about 50 saved to my phone, like Kate Bishop shooting Ace Ventura with an arrow. They're great. Hawkeye is making up for the lost time. But his past is coming to take that time away. Hawkeye reassures his family in the beginning of the trailer, and it appears this could be in the middle of the season because he's wearing an earpiece. 
So he's in covert communication with someone. Possibly somebody who has a shot they could take on somebody. Somebody manipulating him to do something. He could be scared or he could be planning with Kate Bishop. There's a million things that could be going on. I had to rewatch the Molotov scene a few times. After Hawkeye meets Kate Bishop, he appears to get into a bad run of events and various groups of enemies af uh, go after the two, like the tracksuit bros from the comic. One gang of the tracksuit bro uh, bros tries to throw a Molotov cocktail, and my mans broke the window first to catch the Molotov. It sounds like a bypassable moment. He broke the window first before catching the grenade. Meant for on-contact explosion. Those small moments give me hype from insight, thanks to a grander universe. Those moments will feel very juicy, very awesome. Him being a street-level hero, it's, it feels so cool when he performs as a street-level hero. We see both Hawkeye and Kate Bishop fall from a roof. Hawkeye's is a lot bigger of a drop at one point. Uh, I'm not talking about the ending scene where you see both of them perform the Avengers-style uh, turnaround shot as they both jump off of the roof. But we've seen parallels of this in My Life as a Weapon of them just taking falls off of roofs constantly. All in all, the energy is insane. And uh, full of chemistry just from the trailer. My hype levels are all engine go. So let's do this. On to the What If Episode 6. This episode is titled, What If Killmonger Rescued Tony Stark? And when one universe gets destroyed, we migrate over to a slightly more half-full one, about the beginning of a great story. With the Watcher's full physical form, as we saw in the fourth episode of What If?, when Stephen Strange lost his heart instead of his hands, we actually got a glimpse at the Watcher. Now the Watcher looms over the setting in the Middle East where Iron Man 1 took place, where Tony was selling black market weapons overseas, as was his duty as a merchant of death. Even though the Watcher tells us we will end up in a very different destination, we find out ourselves in the Kunar province of Afghanistan as per the opening of Iron Man 1. Not too different yet. The dialogue very reminiscent of Iron Man 1 without the MySpace callback. Peace. I love peace. I'd be out of a job with peace. Very different from how our Tony, his character development ends up. Like with uh, lines like, isn't that why we fight? So we can end the fight? So we can go home? The classic convoy bombing where Tony finds himself helpless to get kidnapped now finds Tony in the midst of Killmonger. This was absolutely magnetic. Throwing Killmonger in this mix instantly makes it 200% different from Iron Man 1 and even Black Panther. It's the kind of hot sauce and the ice cream that left me like, Kang from the end of Loki. I couldn't see where this was going. It was just so random. What's your afternoon like? Tony asks an interested Killmonger. The soundtrack style from Black Panther adds a little pep in the step of this story telling, which otherwise felt bleak and hopeless the whole time in the opening of Iron Man 1. But wait, we're going to show this armor's game-winning highlights with this soundtrack. 
Tony forging the Mark I, the rotating shot from Avengers 1, which went down in cinema history, but also the snap that concluded the armor's use in Avengers Endgame. Also quite legendary. With the hi-hats and the brass horns, I couldn't escape the fusion of Black Panther and Avengers composition brewed to subtle perfection. A hero was lost because Killmonger saved Tony. He finds it necessary to signal Killmonger in the crowd by what he would have considered gang signs in the Humvee. Come on, Tony. Tony informs the crowd of reporters as he normally does with quick-witted narcissism and a bombshell that gets people talking. Killmonger, Eric, has been promoted to Stark Chief Security Officer, which otherwise would have gone to Happy Hogan. A choice with Happy that proved to Spider-Man back from the depths of despair assist Black Widow in stopping Whiplash's Iron Legion suits, and even dating Melissa Tomei. Happy did his thing in the Sacred Timeline, but now it's time for Killmonger to step up as CSO. But wait, the once snarky news reporter that was able to curve all of Tony's tales in the conference room, Christine Everhart, one that Tony has been intimately personal with, that's a point for the Stark man, Christine brings up why Killmonger was even there in the first place, Lieutenant Killmonger revealing he was there after he uncovered plans for Tony Stark's assassination from the Ten Ring Society. Killmonger was working for the Ten Ring Society, which stays on brand because in the terrorism videos made in Iron Man 1, you can see the Ten Ring Society present, which can also be exciting because of their full presence in Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Obadiah trying to silence Killmonger and his reveal of these plans to the audience leads into Eric saying Obadiah Stane approved funding for these assassination plans, fully dismantling the plot that would have occurred over the next hour and a half in Iron Man 1. Now I'm fully like Kang. I have no idea what's going on. Killmonger dropping Obadiah's files on Google start calling for Stane's arrest and the happy haymaker that'll tie up this Iron Man 1 what-if. He certainly makes for good TV. During what I assume to be the house party from Iron Man 2, this gets interrupted by Don Cheadle's war machine. We now have a heart-healthy Tony not hell-bent on living fast before he dies. Gwyneth Paltrow couldn't make it to the party, instead we got Beth Hoyt, who I absolutely enjoyed because her voice gave that CEO air which I always felt Gwyneth Paltrow lacked. A voice of conviction, albeit how much I do enjoy Paltrow's uh, Miss Potts. Beth Hoyt did her thing. Tony and Eric clanking glasses while Pepper walks away in secret intent toward the back of the house. The animation of the dancers felt a little overlooked by Disney standards. They were low FPS. I didn't love it. The low poly, the background FPS, the chunky frame style, no thank you. Disney, put some love into your animation, because we know you do. Don Cheadle is back in a Disney Plus property, which feels like a gift because Cheadle always acts like he wants to be there. He performs next to the actors who sometimes feel like too much. Like they're all embodying as one character. Like with Robert Downey Jr., you know he's Tony Stark inside or outside the suit. Thor is always Thor. Don Cheadle gives us the military persona and the duty of a country-serving man. But he's also an Avenger, a best friend. He can separate duty and love, but never exclusively. 
Like when he comes downstairs in Iron Man 2 to berate Tony for someone having his technology the day prior. He still showed concern for the smoking corroded piece of metal inside his best friend's heart. He adds a bit of the multi-capable functionality in this episode of What If. Which sometimes doesn't appear challenging next to the whole of the character of Pepper Potts. I'll leave it at that. Rhodes brings up the Killmonger being from Oakland callback like you hear in Black Panther. Pepper does deliver a pretty good line with, That's the problem. Everyone wants something. Tony Stark's Lamborghini is 3D printed. That's insane. Killmonger is able to quote Tony's father with a line we've heard Tony say before. Peace means having a bigger stick than the other guy. Michael B. Jordan returning to voice act Killmonger, we get this conversation that feels sinisterly half-hearted thanks to the suspicion of Pepper Potts. Now the animation team gets to have some fun playing off this possible evil intent. Project Liberator. You have an ear for branding. Killmonger literally makes a Gundam to Tony's notice. What? I like anime. As a huge fan of anime myself, this is as close to fully acknowledging the bold lore of anime as we've ever come thus far in the MCU. Iron Man being someone conceptually about mechs. Japan is famous for making art that features uh, mech kaijus, the mech kaiju realization, like with Gundam, Power Rangers, Voltron, Evangelion, Zoids, just to name a few. Uh, but this is little more of a call back to Michael B. Jordan's interest in anime. His character's interest in anime. Him wearing a Dragon Ball Z shirt in Black Panther. I found myself falling in love with the mechanical team-up of Stark and Stevens. It almost didn't feel that bad in nature because of their friendship. Tony filming Eric instead of himself piloting the Iron Man suit. Rhodey should be mad jealous with all this friendship. They're even eating pizza and lounging around while Rhodey works for the fucking Air Force. Tony definitely picks and chooses his friends. War Machine needs to go out for margaritas with Captain Marvel. At least they could talk about the military together and flying. Stark then comes up with an idea for a miniaturized arc reactor. But no, that's a dumb idea. Not being forced with the technology at hand, Tony already sees how obsolete and impractical the arc reactor would end up being, allowing him to transfer to the nanites. The arc reactor which also would have poisoned his heart by now. Killmonger comes up with the thought for Vibranium, almost like he intended on it the whole time. The manipulation becoming more apparent, even contributing the Vibranium ring he carries around his neck like the one in Black Panther for his father. The reference, two bad pops used all the Vibranium during the war, references Howard Stark's creation of Captain America's shield to Tony's knowledge. Something he has thrown in Captain's face during Captain America Civil War, but it also comes back up numerous times. How that amount and use of vibranium becomes infamous. Like when the Dora Milaje grab the shield from US agent and Falcon and the Winter Soldier, they say to leave the shield because the Americans painted it funny. Even though the mi- minerals belong to the country of Wakanda, and somewhat exclusively, they didn't want it. It's been tainted. Using a callback from Avengers Age of Ultron, Ulysses Claw. When Ultron confronts Claw for the first time, he revealed that Tony and him had a business relationship in the black market weapons industry. 
They decide to send Rhodey to make it seem more like an American diplomatic mission requiring a U.S. military liaison. Can't clean up the world without getting your hands dirty. Andy Serkis is back to voice Ulysses' claw, but his rendition almost feels so specific and genuine to Andy Serkis, it almost doesn't work for animated claw, personally. Offering up a spear from the Dora Milaje, Rhodey asks for more substantial amounts of vibranium. Now that Rhodey means business, Claw can show Rhodes the cash Ultron had to force out of Claw. Someone has arrived, and even though it felt like fucking Predator on that ship, I got more and more excited thinking it could be, and yes it was, T'Challa, voiced by Chadwick Boseman as the Black Panther. The last couple times we heard Bozeman, we didn't get to see him in action as the Black Panther, and I think this made this episode all the more special. And now, Immortal. The same deafening sound that immobilizes Tony at the hands of Obadiah from Iron Man 1 appears here to paralyze Black Panther and Rhodey at the hands of Killmonger. Killmonger staying true to his villainous intent from the movie Black Panther, he shows his true colors in his villainous form of loyalty and talk of oppression. Killmonger was the kind of king Odin warned Thor of. A good king doesn't seek war, but a great king must always be ready for one. Killmonger always seeked out war for the same freedom he didn't believe Americans deserved. He's a fantastic villain with complex groundings, and this makes him compelling to fall in love and hate on screen. Rhodey believed you had to be a part of the system to change the system. Killmonger believed you could just burn it down, showing their parallels as Rhodey dies. Ulysses' lack of desire to play chess with Killmonger is stated to show Eric being three moves ahead of everyone, playing a double cross, hell, a triple cross. But a villain understands a villain, and Claw and Eric form a deal. And now something truly heartbreaking, Lieutenant James Rhodes and Prince T'Challa are pronounced dead. Simultaneous shots of parallel funerals done in differing cultures, some things aren't so different. Like in how we grieve, how we honor the dead. The idea is the same and no less hard. Seeing a representation of Chadwick's character passing particularly struck my whole art. I felt like Tony sitting on the couch drinking a glass of scotch. Eric presents Tony with the spear from the Dora Milaje, but Tony's not having it, using his words as spited daggers, Jarvis having caught Eric's actions towards the now-deceased heroes. Police are for the law. I want justice. Tony fulfilled Eric's plan with Project Liberator, melted down the vibranium ring, and created a sentinel robot in which to exact vengeance for a slightly villainous Tony Stark. We saw how after witnessing his parents' death decades prior, he became blind with murderous rage, a blacking out with hopes to kill Bucky Barnes during Civil War. This demonstration of going for blood did ring true for Tony's response to grief. Even his half-eyelid blink, his flutter and annoyance for Killmonger's resistance to the murder bot, I wish they paid attention to the dancers at the party in terms of this detail. Your moves are his moves. This is what Real Steel would have been if Hugh Jackman had to go against the robot. Real Steel 2, realer. 
Killmonger getting his shirt ripped off and Lawless disregard. Did somebody say fan service? And now with his shirt ripped off, it felt a little bit more like the waterfall scene where he took the throne from T'Challa in 1v1 combat. Killmonger was attempting to become king instead of Stark. That's what this symbolically felt like to me. When he was shirtless and Tony Stark had his attire, you know, like a nerd, like a dorky dork, he took the kingship from him. Are they trying to show us how far this character could have taken his story given a different circumstance? Yes, Killmonger kills Tony, but at this moment it was self-defense. He was saying how he wished Tony wouldn't make the cut for the tallies on his body. Of each person he's murdered, each life he's taken. It is sinister on Killmonger's part considering their roles in the MCU already established, but Killmonger found a friend. And instead of telling him he believes it's wrong, Tony tried to kill him, like he did Bucky. Just when I thought we'd see something a bit less dark after the last three episodes of What If, Tony gets stabbed by a spear and dies in a room painted red. I can't make heads or tails of this story yet, but with two of Earth's mightiest heroes gone, at the hands of Killmonger, very impressive, Killmonger is in a very interesting place. One he could rise to action from as a mantle for both Iron Man and Black Panther. Although I don't see how likely that is at this very moment. But if he wanted to use them villainously, like Doc Ock used Spider-Man's name and the superior Spider-Man and even his entire body, he could use their mantles. The Watcher, again, isn't his old silhouette form. He is actualized. He's real in our universe now. I think of this as his gaining of participation, growing closer and closer to interfering. I don't believe he was even supposed to talk to Doctor Strange, but it was so intense he couldn't help but tell off the Sorcerer Supreme. Maybe he's within orbit of our timeline now, as closely as he's been watching. Thaddeus Ross, Thunderbolt Ross, we do see Robert Downey Jr. at the end of The Incredible Hulk with Edward Norton, and in a lot of ways, the first movie in the MCU, thanks to the cameo at the end by Tony Stark. This and Civil War are as close as we see Thunderbolt Ross's involvement with Tony Stark. Pepper does nail how obvious this all seems in one line. Three murders, two days, one man at the center. It was inarguable after that, and yet the board has to get involved? I don't understand multi-billion dollar business fairs, but... I think that would be a pretty easy decision. Thunderbolt Ross seized all of Stark Industries' assets, and with Killmonger at the helm, he just invented 21st century warfare. With a robot army of vibranium robots, each one pilotless, besides the moveset of Killmonger's fighting style and command. The unexpected but appropriate villain relationship between Claw and Killmonger leads them to the holographic gates of Wakanda. But after Claw demonstrates subtle racism, wasn't even that subtle, it was uh, a line right in our face calling him boy. That's fucked up, Claw. I'm totally okay with Claw's inevitable demise at this point. Killmonger has created a full-on Shakespearean ruse by pretending to be an interest for Wakanda's defense against his vibranium robot army. King T'Chaka accepts Killmonger to Wakanda, claiming to see the eyes of Eric's father inside of him. But watching Black Panther, you see T'Chaka murder Eric's father while staring into his eyes. 
He probably feels a guilt and accepts Killmonger no matter what. Killmonger then shares details of the attack with Okoye and the Dora Milaje, which we know as Killmonger's robots. His quest is well thought out. It seems marginal in the ability to actualize this plan from his roots in saving Tony to being here now. Shit, he might deserve total conquest at this point. If this were Game of Thrones, he'd be all of our favorite character. Shuri's age also tends to make a little bit of sense considering the time period. If this were Iron Man 2, this would be about seven years before Black Panther. So she would be the near-adolescent girl we see here. The plan Killmonger presents to Wakanda is to let the robots into the shield to disconnect Jarvis from the robots, allowing Killmonger full control, and the robots would be in Wakanda. How he presents it, though, it seems in best interest as a plan of attack to let the robots in. Killmonger might be the smartest villain in the MCU after this. This kind of planning blows Zemo's plans out of the water. The plan having worked and the robots shutting down after crossing the force field in front of Wakanda's army, T'Chaka shares his gratitude with Eric, saying he'll always have a home in Wakanda. The subtle detail of the Stark Industries decal on the key fob gives hint to Killmonger's control of the robot army, and to Eric himself saying he wants a bit more than a home in Wakanda. Shori's first response to the robot army's reactivation shows her intellectual prowess as well as hero instinct. If in fact she was to become Black Panther in the sequel, I'd be all for it. Killmonger stating Tony Stark didn't trust anyone felt like a quadruple-sided meaning. Yes, Tony had precautions to everything and didn't share his plan to build Ultron with the Avengers, that is true, even bringing about civil war. But Tony also didn't trust Killmonger. Rightfully so after murdering his best friend in cold blood. But thirdly, Eric felt betrayed by someone he considers his closest friend. Killmonger didn't have friends, only a plan. So Tony, very well qualified as his buddy, he was really hoping Tony didn't make the murder cut. Lastly, Killmonger could have been saying Tony didn't trust anyone, but he could have meant himself. Because he didn't trust the Wakandans to accept him, he made backup plans. Or further, he never intended to trust anyone to assure his father to be avenged. So he's basically saying, I don't trust anyone. He didn't trust anyone, he didn't trust Tony, Tony didn't trust anyone, and Tony didn't trust himself. The Wakandans leap to action in response to the robot army, and T'Challa's mom kicks ass. Okoye finds herself grappling with a Stark bot, and Killmonger mobilizes to fight for Wakanda. Riding one of the robot rhinos from the Black Panther movie, Killmonger dispatches to save Okoye and demonstrate his value to the nation of Wakanda through a cleverly executed plan. A master chess player, a master tactician, this what-if is definitely playing on the villain's greatest strength in my theory, his intellect. Okoye, who barely needs help, gets grabbed out of nowhere, but she still is a B character, so who would assume the role of our A-list Avenger-level main character lies in the hands of a yet-to-be-fulfilled mantle for Killmonger. T'Challa's mother, the leader of the Dora Milaje, demonstrates why she is a military leader, while T'Chaka, who would have assumed the role of the Black Panther during this fight, was unable due to his prolonged use of the herb. He is left weak and vulnerable. 
while still having held the esteem and respect of serving Wakanda as the Black Panther. Queen Ramonda is no helpless queen, though. She is revered, respected, and is a perfect partner for the Black Panther, considering she wasn't one herself, though she could have been. She absolutely lays waste to these vibranium robots no more than American trash to the well-experienced veterans of vibranium usage and smithing. With this confidence and combat prowess, she makes an accurate and vital throw through two Stark androids, only to pull it out in a royal gesture of war and pride for T'Challa, subtly shedding a tear in honor of her fallen son. The fight ends to the chance of the Wakandans, and the day is won. Now with the transition of the Watcher in the background, not watching with intent, but saddened, focused, and sympathetic. Killmonger on the mountain from the end of Black Panther, having proven his loyalty to the king, but not to the viewers. We see through his sweet facade. Seeing a more sinister Killmonger, after the goal of becoming the Black Panther, T'Chaka bestowing the herb to Eric and slipping him into the plains of the Black Panther only to be greeted by the deceased T'Challa, voiced by Chadwick Boseman. Power unearned can be a very volatile force, cousin. It will get the best of you, eventually, on your plane or on ours. A powerful reckoning with a possible fate, if not warned by his predecessors, Killmonger can succumb to a cruel fate any way he escapes it. Now the American military mobilizes to go to war with Wakanda. Thunderbolt Ross intends to wipe Wakanda off the map with a callback from the Jericho missiles seen in the first Iron Man. But Pepper Potts discovering young Shuri at her desk with evidence that Killmonger murdered Iron Man and Black Panther, this sparks an idea of action between the two would-be heroes. Heroes are never really gone. They live forever. As do the ones they inspire to carry on the fight. A beautiful sentiment from Uatu that leads us to believe this will come full circle by the end of this season with Shuri and Pepper avenging against Killmonger, which could be pretty fucking cool. With a glimpse into the near future, we shut our eyes on episode 6 of What If and the End of our two-parter episode. I thank everyone who participated in the creation of this episode, and thank you for tuning in each week as we uncover the vast multiverse in all its interconnected layers. Its future layout. Marvel showing us how far they'll go in terms of pushing boundaries and storytelling. They need to work out the kinks with their super unique animation style. It's still pretty rough in some scenes, but What If is a lovely animation series I can get behind during these very short breaks between movies. After What If finishes up, we have The Eternals, we have Hawkeye, and immediately into Spider-Man No Way Home. So it's a good time to be a Marvel fan. Stanley wanted to nourish the minds of readers everywhere. And I think this is in good spirit of that. On that note, we'll see you next time when we ponder the question that's on everybody's mind in the mass multiverse. What if? See you next time. Excelsior, true believers. Hey everybody, it's your boy Fatal. Make sure you follow us on Spotify, Google, Apple, or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts.